0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> As we continue studying the methods and the means of our adversary Satan to attack the people of God, Satan that prowling lion Our text is verses 8 through 10 of chapter 5 in First Peter, and this is the word of God. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Well, last week, we looked at four of Satan's devices as the deceiver, ways in which he seeks and strives to draw the soul to sin. And this week, we're going to look at four devices of Satan the accuser. Satan the accuser, our adversary, because when Satan can't tempt you to sin, when you won't give in to his temptations to sin, he won't give up. But instead of tempting you to sin... He will do his utmost to to destroy your comfort and your peace and your joy and your happiness in the Lord. Now, of course, Satan, the accuser, will use quite a bit of deceit to do so. Uh, The accuser and deceiver overlap quite a bit. But we are looking especially at Satan who accuses God's people. If he can't deceive you into sin, he will accuse you. And abuse you and do everything that he can to make you unhappy and uncomfortable as one of the sheep of Jesus Christ. And we're doing this because Peter commands us to resist him. Resist him. And so you need to know the methods that he uses to attack you in order to know how to resist his attacks. And Paul, as we read last week in 2 Corinthians 2, says, We're not ignorant of his designs. We need to know the methods that Satan uses to attack Christ's people. And so we're going to look at four devices of Satan as the accuser, devices he uses to keep the soul in a sad or a doubting condition. The first of these is to tell you that your sin is greater than your Savior. Satan wants to destroy your happiness and he will do this by telling you that your sin is greater than your Savior. Our accuser loves to point at our sins and magnify them and use them to, to lash and whip us. You sinner, you sinner, you sinner, you sinner. And what happens when we listen? Instead of resisting him, what happens when we, when we listen and we, we hear and we give in to all of these thoughts that assail us? Well, it's the same thing that happens to someone who's sick and just thinks about their sickness all the time. If you're sick and all you think about is your sickness and you dwell on your disease, what will happen? Your happiness and your comfort and your peace will quickly disappear. And so we need to think about the medicine. We need to think about the cure. We need to think about the thing that takes away our sickness or alleviates our pains. Here's another way to think about it. Will you be joyous thinking about your debts when your debts have been paid? Does it make sense to lose your happiness over debt if those debts have been paid? You see, if someone came to you and said, I've I've paid all of your debts, and yet then after that, you just thought thought about your debts and thought about your debts and thought about your debts, it would be insanity It just wouldn't even make sense. But Satan wants you to forget your Savior by making your sin seem so great and for making us forget or or encouraging us to forget the fact that our debts have been paid. So how can we resist? How can we overcome this manner in which Satan seeks to keep us in a sad and doubting condition? Well, we need to remember that although Jesus has freed us from the condemnation of, that is due for our sin, or the penalty that is due for our sin, Jesus has not yet freed us from the presence of sin in our lives. Jesus has freed us from the penalty of sin, but he has not yet freed us entirely from the presence of sin in our lives. So we therefore can tell our accuser from the word of God, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those whose debts have been paid are not asked to pay their debts. And so we can appeal to divine justice and we can say the law cannot condemn me if Christ has fulfilled the law for me Divine justice cannot condemn me if Jesus has paid the penalty for my sin and my sins have been pardoned in his blood. If I've been acquitted, if I've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for me, which means that although sin is present in my life, the mere fact that sin is present in my life does not mean that I'm not a believer, nor does it mean that I have no hope. In such a case where the, the Christian looks at their own sin, and we do indeed have sin, in the case where we look at our sin so much that we fail to see our Savior, we're forgetting that Jesus has promised to forgive, to forgive our sins, or God has promised to forgive our sins in Jesus Christ, but we're forgetting that Jesus did not promise to eradicate the presence of sin from our lives while we are in the flesh. If someone comes and pays all your debts and you continue to dwell on the debts that have been paid, that's silly. So instead of that, what we should do is love the hand that has dispersed the money to pay our debts, to look on the one who has paid our debts rather than on the debts that have been paid. We have to look upon Jesus Christ and love him and thank him and serve him. And we can then say that the believer who is, who is beleaguered And laboring under the guilt of sin, they can say to confidence, to God, I owed you a great debt and a great deal, but Jesus Christ was my ransom. Jesus Christ was my redemption. His blood was the price of that redemption, and he has paid the price for my sins to the last penny. Jesus has satisfied your justice to the uttermost, Please check your book of justice and you will see that you yourself have signed the ledger to say that my debts have been paid in the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And then we remember 1 John chapter 3, that when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. His books are open. His knowledge is perfect and unchanging. He knows divine justice stands behind us and approves of us because we are righteous in Christ and forgiven in Jesus Christ. So when Satan wants us to be kept in a sad and doubting condition, because there is sin in the life of the believer, we need to point to Jesus Christ and remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And though he has freed us from the penalty of sin, he has not yet fully liberated us from the power and the presence of sin. But before we move on from this point, we need to add a further way of resisting. Namely, you need to keep one eye on the promise of forgiveness, which is what we've just been talking about. And if you have poor vision in either eye, you have to choose which one you put here. You keep one eye on the promise of forgiveness, the promise of pardon. But you need to keep the other eye on the inward operations of sin. You need to keep one eye on the promise of pardon and another eye on the inward operations of sin. Inward operations, sin moving in your own heart. Sin moving in your own heart, the sin that is at work within you. Jesus destroys the dominion of sin over us, but sin nevertheless remains in us, and it's at work in us. And we do have a certain promise, a sure and certain promise that God graciously pardons all our sins, even those sins which are not fully subdued in this life. So that's keeping one eye on the promise of pardon. But at the, at the same time, we have to be busy and active and proactive and diligent in the work of sanctification, keeping the other eye always on the inward operation of sin, and it must be both. If you look more on your sin than on your Savior, then you belittle the promise of forgiveness. But if you look at your Savior without any glance at the sin in your life, then you forget the terrible price that was paid for your sins and the holiness to which you have been called by God himself. And there are many in the past two decades with the rise of uh, what was previously called the emergent church and Acts 29 churches and churches of that nature there was a deal of good doctrine as Calvinism it was called reformed theology but it it was often just Calvinism as Calvinism went forth in some churches that was a good thing and by Calvinism we simply mean the truths of the scripture about salvation that are commonly referred to as Calvinism. That was a good thing, but in many of those churches, and, and any church could be susceptible to this. We do not exempt ourselves, as we would never make this mistake. But there, are, there have also been an, there has also been often an imbalance, where grace, free grace, grace, free grace, is so preached up, that it's preached up to the, to the loss and to the neglect. Of the importance and necessity of sanctification and the work that the believer must do to fight sin and put it to death. And so you get even in Christian worship music, infinite songs about grace, grace, free grace, as beautiful and wonderful as that is for us. But we need to have at the same time another eye on the inward operation of sin and the fight that we must fight, the struggle that we must struggle against sin as a result of grace and free grace. But if all that is presented is a constant comfort in the free grace of God without an accompanying holiness of life that is commanded after that, then we run the risk of comforting those who shouldn't be comforted. Because so long as they live in sin unrepentantly, they should not receive the comforts of the gospel until they repent and come humbly. Otherwise, consider this. If you imbalance it in such a way that it's only promises of pardon and never dealing with sin, how could you ever exercise church discipline? How could you bar someone from the table? If they say, no, I'm a Christian, I deserve to come to the table. It's a right I have by covenant. How could we say, no, it's not for you? We could only say, no, it's not for you because of a lack of repentance for sin. But if you don't preach repentance, if you don't preach the law, then you imbalance yourselves and you constantly comfort those that shouldn't be comforted until they humble themselves and repent. So when Satan says, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, we say, it's true. I am guilty for my sins. I have sinned against my Lord, but he has forgiven my sins in his blood. He has promised me forgiveness, and therefore there is no condemnation for me in him. And the sins that you have pointed out and you're right about, I'm going to fight against them and put them to death. And then what what does Satan have to say against us? On the one hand, our sins are forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ. On the other other hand, we kind of sarcastically say, thank you for pointing out my sins, Satan. No, I'm going to work hard on those for for the love of God and in gratitude for his grace to me, then he has nothing to say against us at that point. You're free from condemnation, and you're doing the work of sanctification by God's God's power and grace. But it must be both. The happy believer is forgiven and watchful. That's what Peter tells us to do. Be sober-minded and watchful. Be on your guard. Be diligent. Resist him. Firm in your faith. But if you only look at your sin and never your savior, you will be unhappy. And if you only look at your savior and never your sin, then you live in hypocrisy. Secondly, another method that Satan uses to keep the soul in a sad and doubting condition is to tell you that your graces don't measure up. Your graces don't measure up. What do I mean by graces? Well, when God saves us, when he regenerates the soul, the new birth that comes through the preaching of the gospel, there are spiritual fruits that come from this new birth. God renews us. And so the graces are the evidences of God's saving work in the soul of his people, in the souls of his people. And Satan will say, no, 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 you can't be a Christian. You can't be real because your graces that you think you have, they don't measure up. You have false graces. Your your graces don't measure up. But one of the ways in which he tries to do this, this is Satan the deceiver and accuser, is that Satan uses false definitions of our graces. Satan uses false definitions of our graces. For example... A very common one that Satan uses is to make people confused about or keep them in ignorance about the distinction between faith and assurance of faith. Something we talked about in a sermon not too long ago. There's a distinction between, a true and right distinction between faith and assurance of faith. And Satan wants people to think that unless they have the fullest and strongest assurance, they have no faith. He wants people to think that true faith is a full assurance of the love of God for you and a full assurance of the pardon of your sins. And so if you at times doubt the love of God for you, or if you at times doubt the forgiveness of your sins, you clearly don't have faith because your graces don't measure up. You don't, you don't really believe these things. But the problem is that this is a false definition. And one of the things that it does is that it defines something by the extreme of the thing and forgets that there are degrees of things. So, for example, some things can be... We can say that a certain thing is hot. But there are degrees of hotness. When I served tables, the old ladies... Sorry, old ladies they would always say, can you make this coffee hotter? i I can't, I can't make it any hotter. It comes out at a certain temperature. So all we could do is to take the hot water, the wicked hot water for tea and run their cup without anything in it, run the cup under the, the wicked hot water and then put the co- you know dry and put the coffee in the hottest cup. So then they feel the hot cup and they're convinced the coffee is hotter anyway. For them, it wasn't coffee unless it was the hottest, you know, scalding hot. Like most people would die if they drank this. But the hottest coffee does not deny the reality of not as hot coffee. There are degrees of heat. But if heat is only defined by its most extreme grade, then it invalidates and denies the existence of all other kinds of heat, which is just silly. There are degrees of heat. If we defined a human being by the people at the Olympic games, you and I would cease to be human beings. A human being is the most fit, the most athletic, the most strong and so on and so forth. If that's a human being and we measure ourselves by that definition, what are we? We're not even people then. Well, Satan wants you to think that faith has full persuasion, that faith has full assurance, that faith has full conviction. And so therefore, when you have doubts of the love of God for you, or doubts about the forgiveness of your sins, clearly you don't have faith, because faith is to be fully persuaded of these things. But we cry out, as the one who cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, and then what? Help my unbelief. Does Jesus say, no, clearly you don't believe, because there's also some unbelief there, so clean out the unbelief and come back to me when you really believe. No, we say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. John writes to Christians and says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. They do believe, but they have questions and doubts. I write to you who believe so that you may know. There's faith. And there's assurance of faith. These are biblical examples of believers who also have doubts mixed in with their faith. Because faith is indeed to believe. Uh, It it is to know and it is to agree that something is true. And it is to to rest in that. To trust in what you know and, uh, and assent to be true. But that faith rests in an object And then you have your personal persuasion and feelings about that, your assurance that these things are true for me. And so when Satan attacks your assurance of faith, he wants you to think that you have no faith at all. But you need to remember this that there may be true faith where there is little to no assurance. There may be true faith where there is little to no assurance. I write these things to you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. And we need to remember that true faith is mixed with doubt. It's not of the definition of faith to doubt. That's not what I'm saying. But true faith can be or may be mixed with many doubts. How often does Jesus call his disciples, O ye of little faith? At times, they're commended for their faith. At times, their doubts are condemned. It's not good to, it's not good to doubt, but it doesn't mean that you have no faith either. True belief and doubts. Peter makes a confession, and Jesus approves of his faith. The disciples believe of him. Jesus responds to their faith, but other times he calls them ye of little faith. So just because one has doubts or a lack of assurance does not mean that one does not have true faith. But boy, Satan really loves to use this one, doesn't he? Because again, there's often truths in the things that he says. In the first one, it's true, we sin. He points at our sin, that's true. And the second one, he points at our doubts. It's true, we have doubts. Show me a Christian with no doubts, and you'll show me someone that doesn't exist. Now, am I trying to encourage doubt in you? No, it's just an acknowledgement that we have phases and seasons, and Christians pass through times of doubt, even significant or severe doubts and questions and lack of assurance. But remember this also, that assurance is the fruit of faith and not the root of faith. Satan wants to reverse this order and make you think that you have to have assurance and then you can say you have faith. But the reality is you have faith and then you have assurance of faith. Assurance is the fruit of faith, not the root Faith, as I said earlier, has an object, and Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. We believe in him. We believe in him. We confess his name. We understand the propositions of the gospel, the truths that it, that it uh, presents to us. We assent to them as being true. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, crucified, dead, buried, and risen from the dead. We understand and we assent these things are true. And then we trust in that. We say, and and I trust in this for my salvation. That's faith, and it's all centered on Jesus Christ, the object of our faith. That has everything to do with Jesus. What comes from that faith, and that's true faith, said and done, complete. What comes from that is a personal assurance of faith. Therefore, My sins are forgiven. Therefore, God loves me in Jesus Christ. But Satan wants to reverse it and say, you need to be persuaded of God's love for you and the forgiveness of your sins, or you have no faith. Because you need to be fully persuaded of these things first, and then you're said to be a believer. But that's not true. You can have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is minuscule and why did jesus choose that because the object of mustard seed faith is still jesus christ and so the effects of true faith is not dependent on the strength of the believer but the strength of the one in whom we believe and so mustard seed faith or the faith of a martyr have the same object jesus christ the lord's supper is a constant reminder to us why does god love you and why are your sins forgiven why should you be fully persuaded and assured of the forgiveness of your sins and the love of god for you it's not us on the table is it it's not us on the cross is it It's Jesus Christ. It's his body and his blood. So the supper again and again presents Jesus to us as the object of our faith so that we grow in our faith and we refresh our faith and we fortify our faith. And that then produces assurance of faith. As Jesus is and continues to be the object of our faith. So the happy believer, when they're told that their graces don't measure up, that their graces don't reach the mark, we, say, we may say, you know what, I do need to grow in my faith. I do need to overcome my doubts. But it doesn't mean that I'm not a Christian. It doesn't mean that I'm not a child of God. The fact that my faith is weak, and I'm going to cling to Jesus and confess him, even when my feelings and my persuasion and my assurance are wishy-washy and all over the place, because that's what faith does. It clings, it rests, it just holds on for dear life because we're holding on to Jesus Christ. And when the assault is completed and the sea has subsided, then we have a greater assurance of what was true all along, that we are beloved by God, and our sins are forgiven. Because when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Our graces flow from what God has done in us, not greatness in ourselves. So when Satan says, You're not good enough, you're not good enough, your graces aren't aren't where they ought to be, therefore they're false, we say, That's not true. The Lord has begun a good work in me, and I need to, I need to fortify my faith, I need to, to grow stronger, yes but I believe in him. I believe and I confess his name. Thirdly, the third way in which Satan wants to keep the soul in a sad and doubting condition is to say your graces are counterfeit. Your graces are counterfeit. It's not that they don't reach the mark, so therefore they are invalid. It's that you you have an appearance of graces, but they're just fake ones. You appear to be a Christian, but you're not. So Satan will say, okay, you're living a life of relative obedience. You're not living in scandalous sin. So what? Hypocrites can do that. He'll say, you go to church every Sunday? Okay, so what? It's counterfeit. Formalists do that. He'll say, what's the difference between the hypocrite and formalist and you? They live a life that's not in scandalous sin. They go to church every Sunday, and so do you. What's the difference? Satan will say, okay, you obey, but your motives are selfish, and you're just afraid of men. You're just afraid of other people seeing you or seeing you not doing what's right. It's just a fear of man. So your obedience is counterfeit obedience because it doesn't have the right motives and your your obedience in re, your religious obedience your attendance in church and so on and so forth it's just hypocrisy all all hypocr- hypocrites all hypocrites do that they'll say okay you're gilded but you're not gold you're covered in things that look like christian christianity but underneath it's not true you're fake your duties are robotic you were just raised this way it's not you you were just Programmed to do this because you grew up and your parents, this is how they raised you and this is the church that you've grown up in and you've never known anything else. You're fake. You're counterfeit. It's not you. It's a program. How would we respond to this assault? Say, whoa, this is serious. Well, it is serious. And we should acknowledge here again is the truth that At times, a true child of God and a hypocrite do look alike. Okay? So what we have to do is look within. Look within. And one of the sure signs of a true child of God is an inward life that has remorse for sin and fear of sin. When the true believer, when the true child of God is confronted with the very idea that they are counterfeit or fake, they're afraid of that. That scares them. It makes them feel very uncomfortable when true hypocrites are honestly quite happy to be religious without being serious. They're content and they're at peace in their hypocrisy. But the very fact that a Christian would question the genuineness of their own graces is an indication of the genuineness of their own graces. Because they grieve over their imperfections. And they grieve at the fear of the thought of being found outside of Christ. The idea of being found outside of Christ terrifies them. But all these thoughts of being outside of Christ don't mean you're outside of Christ. It means you're afraid of being outside of Christ. And to distinguish between the the counterfeit, the hypocrite, the formalist, and the true child of God, another thing we can do is to make a distinction between renewing grace and restraining grace. In God's children, in the true people of God, he gives renewing grace to them. He's at work in their souls, starting in regeneration, continued in sanctification. God's renewing. He's changing our minds and our wills. He's at work in us. And again, this is where the remorse for sin comes from and fear of sin. It's because God is renewing us. And so we can see in the true child of God a renewing work of grace. But God also gives a common restraining grace to his children and to those that are not his children. Where they are restrained from sin to a degree. But the one who is restrained from sin by God's common grace is not keeping themselves from sin. The the believer keeps themselves from sin because of God's renewing grace at work in their heart. Whereas the formalist, the hypocrite, God restrains them from sin, not because in their hearts they want to serve him, but because God has kept them from sinning. So you have two people that outwardly are not living lives of scandalous sin. Outwardly, they're living relatively normal, uh, religious Christian lives, so to speak. But one is living this because God's at work in their heart, and they do it because they they want to. One is doing it because God's just keeping them from sin. But this, this is the difference between a tamed dog, if we can compare ourselves to dogs for a moment, and a caged dog. The tamed dog has a level of understanding and obedience that comes from the dog itself. But a caged or a leashed dog is not running away and is not causing massive problems, but that's because it's leashed or caged. So one dog is not causing problems because it's tamed. One, the other dog is not causing problems because it's leashed and caged. It's restrained. And so if we see in our hearts that we have a desire to serve God, we have a desire to do what is right, we have a hatred of sin, we have remorse when we sin, we have a fear of sin, and all these things, that's renewing grace in our hearts. But if someone is nonchalant about sin, but they're simply restrained from it by God's restraining grace, they are indeed the hypocrite and the counterfeit. And a huge difference between these two, although they look very similar outwardly, is how they respond to the warnings of Scripture. Scripture uses warnings many different times, and these warnings are to be delivered to God's people because... God makes these warnings effectual to restore, to to correct, restore, and protect his people. And yet at the same time, those warnings expose those who are false. When the sheep hear these warnings of do not stray, stay close to the Lord, be faithful, run the race, fight sin, the believer fears those warnings, respects those warnings, is, says, I don't want to, to, to fall off the road, or I've been off the road, I need to get back on it. The, the believer is restored and corrected and protected by those warnings. But the hypocrite does not tremble at them. Does not tremble at the warnings. They're not fearful of dishonoring the Lord. They may have a degree of restraint, but they do not have renewing, Grace. So if a Christian says to another Christian, I'm afraid that I might not be in the Lord. I am. I am worried because of these things in my life. It shows that they have a heart fear of sin. It shows that they have a heart desire to be found true, but they can't find confidence in themselves about it. They need to look to Jesus Christ. So when Satan says, Okay, you appear to have certain graces, but they're counterfeits. Your money is monopoly money, not real money. We need to say, that's, that's not true. That's not true. In my heart, I have a hatred for sin. In my heart, I have remorse when I sin. And the Lord does not only restrain me from sin, but he's moving in my heart to help me to do what is right, because I love him and I want to do what is right not and just because my motives are not always pure doesn't mean that they're always wrong either. Just as my faith is mixed with doubts at times, my motives can sincerely be for the Lord and yet at times be mixed with other motives at the, at the same moment. Hypocrites are motivated by such things. I I repent of the degree to which those motivations are at work in me, but they're not my only motivations. Formalists do these things. I repent to the degree to which I have been formal and monotonous and robotic in my activities, but I nevertheless am doing the right things, and I'm doing them because they're commanded. You see, the accuser is using half-truths, partial-truths, slight-truths, to keep you in a sad and doubting condition. Fourthly and lastly, Satan will say a a true Christian would not be tempted so often or so much. Christians aren't tempted so often. But the fact is that the nearer and dearer you are to God, the more Satan will hate you, And the more he will attack you. Pirates attack ships with the most treasure. Why are those ships attacked more? Because they have more treasure. The children of God are attacked more because Satan hates us more and because we have the graces that he wants to destroy. We have that joy and peace that he will never, ever have. He'll never have joy and never have peace, ever. And so... He wants to take it away from us. He cannot take our crown, but he can take our comforts. And so because we are laden with comforts, because God has lavished every spiritual blessing upon us in the heavenly places, because we are treasure ships of God's grace, of course Satan's going to attack us more than anyone else. So the fact that we are often tempted is not an evidence that that we are not God's children. But what if we advance and say, well, Satan does not simply afflict my conscience by saying you are often tempted. He afflicts my conscience in saying, you often fall in temptation. How do we respond to that? Well, repentance. There's only one way to respond to falling in temptation, and that's repentance. Whereas a child of God, though we have fallen, yet we stand up again and we renew our hearts. Laying hold of God's promise of forgiveness, but also laying hold of God's promise of power to fight against sin, to mortify it and run away from it. Which brings us back to that first point of then what can he do? If he accuses you, a Christian would not so often fall in temptation. We say, I should not have sinned. I should not have done that. That's true accuser. But I appeal to God for mercy and forgiveness, and I appeal to God for power to fight against this sin. So if it's the fact that you are often tempted, we say, that's not surprising. It's never an excuse, but it's not surprising. And if, we're, if Satan accuses us of, of the fact that we often fall in temptation, we repent and we don't go to him to satisfy Satan. We go to the Lord our God to renew our communion and refresh our communion with our Father. You don't have to answer Satan. <laughs> you don't answer to him. You can just say, not today, Satan. You can say, I'm not going to play this game. No, I refuse to listen. Well, in a short time, that's four devices of the accuser, which, remember, this was supposed to be all together with last week's four devices of the deceiver. And I hope that these things are an initial a foundational help towards us to fight against to identify and fight against satan's devices because he's wise he's he's crafty astute and he has thousands of years of experience as well as angelic power and a host of soldiers to to help in this war against christ's people and i would encourage you once again to read Thomas Brooks' book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, which goes into these and many other devices in much more detail, it is very useful. Let's conclude with four conclusions that come from both last week's four devices of the deceiver and this week's four devices of the accuser. Four things we need to keep in mind. Number one, do not blame all your temptations on Satan. Do not blame all your temptations on Satan. The devil made me do it. Nice try. No matter what, when we sin, we are responsible. We need to at least say that. When someone sins, they have sinned, and they must repent and cannot blame other people. There may be explanations of a sort, but there are no excuses. But we must not blame all our temptations on Satan. What I mean is that temptation comes from multiple sources. The world, the devil, and what's the one in between those two? flesh oftentimes it's simply the sin that remains in us that craves sin and it's we have only ourselves to blame i wanted this now cannot satan use the world and the flesh to incite us yes is it always one or the other no it's often many if not both or all three but we must acknowledge that I'm, we must not think, I'm just perfectly innocent and all, these, all the temptation comes from outside of me. No, the temptation comes from within, from the heart and the sin that remains in us. And we must not blame all our temptations on Satan. Because if you do that, you won't do the work of mortification in your heart. You won't do the work of hating sin in your heart and loving holiness in your heart. You'll just think that the fight against sin is all about resisting external temptation but if you don't do the work of the heart, nothing will happen. Number two, spiritual weapons will prevail. Spiritual weapons will prevail. This is something we'll cover in more detail later, so I'm not going to go into detail now, but the emphasis here is that we cannot rely on external controls in the fight against sin. If you remember a sermon some time ago, we said that graham crackers and cornflakes don't stop lust, which sounds like a very silly thing to say, but that's why those foods were invented. The person who made these foods, graham crackers and cornflakes, thought, well, if men eat bland, tasteless foods, then they will control the appetites of the flesh and they will not lust or sin sins of sexual immorality. But guess what those things have no power in stopping the heart as jesus talked about well jesus through paul in colossians 2 talks about harshness on the body that has an appearance of wisdom but no power against sin so also if we think okay i need to fight against sin if all you do is try to control your circumstances and environment that's not enough you need to deal with the heart and use spiritual weapons is it not good and wise to do certain practical things that keep us away from sin or keep sin away from us or make us accountable in a variety of ways for a variety of different sins? Of course. But those are all external controls, and it's a heart war where spiritual weapons will prevail. And we need to use, if it's the soul that's being enticed to sin, soul-focused attacks, we need to use soul-protecting remedies, which are spiritual weapons. Thirdly, be humble. Peter's just been teaching humility in the antecedent context. We need humility because we face a strong adversary, and no one should think that they can contain or control sin. Well, I'll only go this far, I'll only go this much. Even that is a defeat. You've already been defeated because you've already been deceived. We need to be humble and say, I need the Lord's help. I need the help of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I cannot do this on my own. God help me. May the church help me. The pastors help me. My brothers and sisters help me. We need to be humble. And God gives grace to the humble. And he will lift us up. Fourthly and lastly, strength comes from communion with god strength comes from communion with god in some ways this is a repetition of the second reminder that spiritual weapons will prevail we need to use god's armor and god's weapons in the fight against sin and be strong with his strength peter says be sober-minded and be vigilant be watchful So we ought to be watchful in prayer. Stay close to God in communion with him. Pray when you're tempted and don't stop praying until the temptation has passed. And if you were praying and then you gave in to temptation, why did you stop praying? Well, I was praying, but then I gave in. Did you stop praying? Well, yes. Why did you stop praying if you were still tempted? Strength comes from communion with God, and prayer is one of the primary means that we maintain and refresh our communion with God. We pray, Help me, O oh Lord. Help me to hate this sin. Help me to remove it from my heart and from my mind. Lord, help me. You keep praying. Help me to love the opposite holiness of this sin. And don't isolate yourself. Lions charge at the herd and they watch for someone, an animal, to break off. And then Once that animal is isolated, the lions kill the soul prey. And so we need to stay close to the church. We need to stay close to Jesus Christ. Knowing that when we are close to him and keeping our communion fresh and refreshed with him, Satan cannot deceive or accuse us. What accusations will stick against us when we stand next to Jesus? What deceit will darken our eyes when we stand next to the brightness of Jesus? Strength comes from communion with God. And so if there are warnings here for you in this sermon, let them, let them move you to run back to the path. Run back to the straight and narrow path and the light and the love of God in Jesus Christ. As a believer, to repent of your sins and be restored to communion with God. Brothers and sisters, all of these things show us that the the way to resist Satan is to to look to Jesus and to be strong in him and to rest in him. And when we rest in Jesus, the accusations, they bounce off. We We don't have to listen to those things. If I am obedient and I am repentant, and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I confess his name, I don't have to listen to those accusations. Satan is silenced because Jesus Christ has already defeated him. Strength comes from communion with God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that you love us and you will never leave us or forsake us, and that even when we go astray and step off the path and wander, nevertheless, you bring us and restore us so that we can continue to walk with you we pray that you would help each one of us here who is faced with different kinds of assaults, different kinds of attacks. For those who are tempted to sin or when we are tempted to sin, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to resist. And for those who are doubting and discouraged, sad, and feeling all kinds and all manner of uncertainty in their hearts. We pray that you would strengthen them, that you would cause them to find their peace and their comfort in Jesus Christ, that you would silence the shouts of the accuser with the glorious good news of the gospel so that we can live in peace and comfort in you. Would you do these things by your power For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name.